We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 12 this morning. We're moving through the book of Samuel. And uh, there is the entire chapter printed off on the sermon notes uh, at the front, or you can grab a Bible. There's a few at the back that are NIV, uh, same translation that I'm working from. Uh, Just a heads up, I'm going to be teaching through the passage. Then I'd like to encourage you, as I do, to just make note of an idea or a theme, maybe a question that you have, or an insight. Because I will be opening it up in a few minutes just to say, what do you notice? What do you think we should learn from a passage like this? So I'm going to set the stage by just summarizing the story so far. Uh, in chapter 8, we'll go back to chapter 8, because chapter 8 is a pivotal chapter in 1 Samuel. The people are like, give us a king. Samuel, you're old. Uh, your sons don't follow in your ways. We want a king like the other nations have to lead us. And then uh, in chapter 9, Saul is led to Samuel through these lost donkeys. And uh, he is eventually anointed at the start of chapter 10 as the new king. But you see in chapter 9 and chapter 10 this hesitancy, this insecurity that drives Saul and is already starting to affect how he engages, or in many cases doesn't engage. He's shrinking away from his calling. So he is anointed, but he's also insecure. And there are these war of identities that are happening within his heart. And in chapter 11, Rick did an awesome job last week of framing the uh, salvation of the city of Jabesh, the deliverance of the city uh, by Saul. And at the end of that chapter, the Israelites are celebrating. They're like, we've got a king. Saul's our king. This is amazing. That, that's kind of like, although Saul was anointed, it's his victory, his military victory that sort of That stamps him as the king. And at the end of chapter 11, people are super excited. And that's, uh, you know, meant to create a bit of tension in the story because Samuel was warning them, if you get a king, it's not going to go well for you. But they got a king. And it went super well for them. That's awesome. So maybe God was just exaggerating. Maybe like, God's just like a Debbie Downer. It's actually not going to be that bad. It's going to be pretty good because so far it's a massive victory against a serious rival. 1 Samuel 12, Samuel says to all of Israel in the context of the celebration, I have listened to everything that you have said to me and I have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I'm old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. And what Samuel is about to launch into is he's he's kind of sort of putting himself on trial. He's doing a a too-long-didn't-read summary of his track record as the last judge. He says, here I stand. So I'm, I'm out in the open, putting all my cards on the table. He says, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and in the presence of his anointed, the king. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. So Samuel is saying, this is your chance, right? Like at a wedding, like speak now or forever hold your peace. This is like, Uh, before I transition us from the period of judges, where judges are going to rule Israel, to now a monarchy under a king, Samuel says, 
come forward if you have anything against me. If I've, if I've led in a way that has been exploitative or manipulative in any way, to any degree, even if one ox was stolen, come forward. And this is important, right? Because you remember so many of the leaders in Israel's history, recent history, were always about getting into a position of power, leveraging that power for their own gain while they uh, hurt and abused and mistreated the people. And Samuel's saying, I made it my ambition to lead a very different way. I'm going to lead, I believe I led God's way. And then in verse 4, they said, you haven't cheated us. You haven't oppressed us. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. And Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you and also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And then they said, yeah, he's witness. So it's kind of like a, okay, God's watching. The king's watching. You're telling me I've never done anything wrong. And they're like, yep, like before God and before the king, you have led righteously and well. You've done the right thing faithfully all the time. Then the next part of this chapter is Samuel shifting and saying, okay, my track record is blameless. Now let's look at God's track record. Let's see how God has led you up to this point. And he says, Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors out of Egypt. Now we don't really catch it here, but what Samuel's going to do is he's going to build a case that like, think about where the Israelites are. We're excited. We're pumped. We're, um, exper we just experienced this victory. Why did the victory come? Well, they're excited because the victory came through the king. It came through Saul. Now we're going to be saved. Now we're going to be delivered. Now we're really going to be a real nation. Strength. Awesome. And it's because of the king. And Samuel retells them their story through the lens of who's actually leading and delivering them. So even though there are people who are like, oh yeah, Moses and... Um, Moses and Aaron delivered, up, delivered us up out of Egypt. He says, no, it was the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. God did this, not Moses and Aaron. Now then stand here because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord, all the saving acts, all the delivering acts, all the good things. They all are sourced in God. Verse 8, after Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help. Jacob is the former name of Israel, from which Israel gets its name. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. Verse 9, but they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines. This is a lot of long uh, historical record being summarized really, really quickly. Major leaders of foreign nations that took over Israel as Israel is delivered and then in different ways says to God, thanks, we'll take it from here. We're going to put our trust in this leader, this king, this judge, this prophet. And into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab who you fought against. And they cried out to the Lord. So the people are saying, they're hearing this. They're hearing what Samuel is saying. And they're saying, we have sinned. We have forsaken the Lord. And we serve the Baals and the Ashtaroths. And remember, that's an idiom that basically means just false god, gods, false paths. We haven't lived into our true identity as the people of God. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies. And we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubal, Barak, uh, Jephthah, 
Samuel, and he delivered you from their hands, sorry, from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety and security. So he's recounting this cycle of we fall into sin, we're over, you know, we're oppressed, please God rescue us, and then he does, and he sent all these leaders. And those leaders were awesome, but it was God who instigated it. Like God sent it. God empowered those leaders. God is at the root of the rescue. So there's this continual pattern where even though these big, famous rescuing names in Israel's history are coming up, uh, Samuel is always very careful to make sure they understand that it's God who's facilitating this rescue. And then in verse 12, he brings them right up to the present. And he says, But when you saw Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, 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 we want a king to rule over us even though the Lord your God was king. Now this is super interesting because to this point in the narrative, we did not know that the reason why Israel asked for a king was because the Ammonites and Nahash were an imminent threat. We found out about that last chapter, but this is the first time we're actually learning that that was a precipitating factor that the Israelites took into account and said, "Uh, Samuel's old, His sons can't really lead us. They're corrupt. We want a king. But now we need to think about that request in light of this because last week, uh, I think Rick did a really good um, and amazing job of explaining how Nahash kind of serves as this witch king, serpent-like general of evil. The name Nahash means serpent. So the Israelites feel vulnerable. They see the Ammonites posing a threat and they say, you know what? Like having yeah, God as your king and everything, like that's great. And having like Samuel and prophets, like that's and judges, like that's helpful. But like we want a king, but not just any king. They want a king like the nations. Which means what they're saying is, we want our own Nahash. That would be like the Ukrainian people going to protest and saying, we want our own Putin. We're under threat. Like in the real world, might makes right. We don't want to trust God. We don't want to trust our own government. We actually are crying out that you would install a bully. Because when push comes to shove, you need a bully to counter a bully. So Israel was actually asking for not just a king to fight their battles, but they were willing to take a serpent, satanic-like king, and look the other way because, well, if that's what it takes to be protected, then I guess it's a small price to pay. And now maybe if you were confused leading up to this chapter why a God and Samuel call this a grievous sin for the Israelites to ask for a king, it now begins to make a little bit more sense because they were actually asking for someone who is anti-Christ, anti-God, serpent-like, but it'll be okay because it'll be on our side. So it'll be, it'll be like redemptive, like it'll, be, it'll work out. And Samuel says, no, you asked for a Nahash, even though God was your king. Now here's the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. 
But if you fear the Lord and serve Him and obey Him and do not rebel against His commands, and if both you and the King who reigns over you follow your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against His commands, His hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Verse 17, he says, Is it not the wheat harvest, which is the driest season in Israel? He says, I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. But now we know like the kind of king they were asking for. It was all just driven by pragmatism. So Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain and the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. Right, dry season, you know, we have smoke season now in BC in the summer. Like, imagine if I was like, here's my charge to you as a church, and this afternoon at 1.30, to confirm this message, God's going to send a deluge of rain. And it happened after like four weeks of drought. That would be awesome. Right, like you'd be like, whoa, this is crazy. This is massive confirmation that God is with Samuel. And it's, a, it's God confirming to them that it really was evil to not trust God, like Rick was referring to, and instead say, I think you got to kind of fight fire with fire. And, uh, you know, in an ideal world, you can kind of trust God. And, and um, I think God is your king. certainly sounds great. Uh, but, like, we really do need to have someone like this to deal with the threats that are around us. Then all the people said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servant so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the sin of asking for a king. So this is a real recognition of the people. Like they see it. They're like, what have we done? Like this is, why would we abandon God as our king? and put our trust not just in princes, but in actually desiring to have someone corrupt come and lead over us and lord their power over us. And then this is amazing. Verse 20, Don't be afraid, Samuel said. You have done all this evil, yet don't turn away from the Lord, but serve Him with all your heart. Don't turn towards useless idols. They're not going to do any good for you. They can't rescue you because they're useless. Or some translations will say they, they, they're of no profit. They don't, they're, not, um, they're not going to be helpful. Verse 22, For the sake of His great name, the Lord will not reject you, His people, because the Lord was pleased to make you His own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. I will teach you the way that is good and right. Okay, let's pause there. And in light of some of the, kind of that narrative arc, I've tried to set the, the picture a little bit. What are things that stood out to you? What do you notice? Or, um, if I were to push you and say, hey, you had to come up with a little short principle or lesson from this passage that we should learn from as modern day Christians, what would you what would you say?
So what do you notice or what do you have questions about or what's maybe a lesson that you think we should learn and take from this passage? Yeah, super. I mean, it's right there. It's kind of hidden in plain sight. It's a major theme of Scripture, but it's important to name. That we, in ourselves, we as a people, we as a community, you as, uh, as, uh, in your marriage, in your families, you can make catastrophically stupid decisions. You can make evil, wrong, uh, you know, um, wildly unwise um, movements in your life. You can pursue all kinds of wicked agendas. But Samuel says, because God was pleased to make you his own, he won't reject you. Romans 8.1 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. doesn't mean that there isn't discipline and rerouting as you get the relationship back on track. But this is, when you, when you put yourself in Israel's place, you can understand how they would think, well, now that we really see what's going on in our hearts, yeah, maybe God's going to say, no, this is your king. I'm not going to be a king anymore. I'm not going to guide you. You made your bed. You lie in it. There you go. Here's your king. Have at it. Good luck. All the best. And I'm just going to stay back and watch the whole thing unravel. But Samuel says, don't be afraid. The Israel's evil here is not the end of the story. And if we keep turning to God, it doesn't have to be the end of the story in our life either. So that just speaks to the ridiculous mercy of God. Just this tremendous, you know, it's, it's not right to call God a God of second chances because it's more like a chameleon, bazillion chances. As we continue to turn to him, recognize our weakness and our brokenness or even our evil. Like, let's just use a word. Maybe we think we have done something either actively or passively, done evil in the um, in the lives of someone else or before God. Samuel says, don't be afraid. Turn to him, obey him with all your heart. He was pleased to make you his own. You can't sin your way out of covenant with God. Once you're in that relationship, you're his. What else can we learn from this passage? Yeah, it's a huge theme of Samuel, uh, but for those listening, the comment was, don't put too much stock in earthly leaders. Um, we're living in an increasingly politicized age, age where when someone introduces a problem, the first question that many people pivot to is, well, what's the government going to do about it? Or how can the government, we, we, we are sort of been trained in a secular humanistic society to look to the government. And the government has power. I was sitting in on a Zoom call with about 20 other pastors across the province with our MLA and a bunch of other MLAs, and we were talking about, they were actually asking the church, uh, uh, faith leaders, it wasn't just churches, but faith leaders, what they did over the pandemic to help their communities and what we want to share with them. And one of the things that I, that I, that I thought was really interesting, and this is just my observation, very small sample size, obviously, was um, no, no faith community that shared, and I can't, I was more paying attention to the other churches, so I can't speak to the other ones. Oop. But um, None of them were like, wow, our people were super in trouble, and then like all these government programs came through, and it was like amazing. They all shared stories about how their church rallied around each other, did things for the community, and just like were salt and light where they were. Feeding people, clothing people, offering 
free counseling, mental health supports, getting people connected to each other. The list went on and on. It was amazing. And that's not to to diminish any of the work that people in government do. It's just even at the best of times, they're really, really limited. And then if you go uh, higher than that and say, you know, it is um, very tempting for anyone, regardless of your political affiliation, to say, if I just had my leader in charge, that would really, that would save. If we just had our guy or girl in charge. And Samuel warns us against that. That, that, that these leaders, even if they're well-intended, they just cannot deliver on the promises because they don't have like God-like wisdom and authority and power. They're frail, broken human beings too. So we have to be very careful not to put our trust in princes, not to put our trust in political systems, to not sit passively and wait for the political winds to change. We have to rally around each other and move forward into the mission of God. I think that's really important. Maybe one more thing that you think we should learn from this passage or could learn. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Sorry. The comment for those listening was uh, kind of that part B was to um, maybe to recognize that when the failing of a Christian leader devastates us, that's likely an indication we've put too much of our hope and trust in them. We can thank God for our Christian leaders, thank God for wise leadership. But when the bottom drops out and something is revealed and someone who you, you knew wasn't perfect, but now like you know they're not perfect, and maybe even they were actively involved in evil and exploitation, when we feel like now we have to walk away from faith, we should take that as, um, we should recognize that's probably coming from a f- place where we've invested too much in that person as a symbolic representation and stand in for Jesus. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have high expectations for leaders. I've talked about this before. You should have very high expectations for leaders. But you also need to understand that they're fragile and they're human. And our trust and our hope is about God by his spirit through his word doing a work. And using leaders, but also using people who aren't leaders. And using people who are up front, using people who are behind the scenes. It's the body of Christ working and serving together. Um, and I think the other thing is just to, to Rick's point about trust I, th- I think it's, it's really challenging to um, think about how easy it is for us as Christians to say well this all sounds great but like in the real world this is how things have to work because that's kind of like how what Israel does right like when they're asking for a king they're like we want a Nahash and there's lots of equivalencies to that in our world not just in terms of leadership but just in terms of like I know Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. But here in the real world, I've got to flame people online. Like that's the way you get things done. That's how you move the needle, politically or socially. Like I know that 
I'm supposed to trust God and I'm supposed to overcome evil with good. And maybe that applies to some situations, but not this one. This one I'm justified in overcoming evil with evil. And it's the same movement. We were looking around us and saying, oh, I can achieve godly ends through ungodly means. So we'll just, like, we'll still exploit these workers. We'll still um, mistreat people. We'll still um, live into kind of an Egyptian style of working people to death. But we're doing it to build the kingdom. Praise God. And it's like, no. We have to make sure that we're doing God's things, in God's ways, in God's timing. That's hard to do, but it's really, really important. I want to end with pulling you into verse 24, where Samuel says, Be sure to fear the Lord, serve Him faithfully with all your heart, and consider the great things that He has done for you. He says, don't move into this next stage of your life without considering the great things that God has done for you, that God has done. Not Moses, not Aaron, not Jacob, not Abraham, not the patriarchs, not these judges, what God has done for you. And we're, in that, we should hear that as a challenge to us. Like, don't move into this week. Don't move into this month. Don't move into 2022. Don't move into Lent. Don't move into this new opportunity before you without considering what great things he has done for you. That God has been faithful and patient and forgiving and he's blessed you in spite of your spiritual stubbornness and immaturity. He's been helping you. He's been surrounding you with people and resources. He's been protecting you. He's been calling and inviting you. He's been redeeming situations. He's been restoring um, places of brokenness and wreckage. And consider that that all gets pulled back to the cross. That all of those things reveal a God who's willing to come and self-sacrifice himself for you. So for our final song, I'm actually going to invite you to remain seated. And this is a song that celebrates the great things that God has done. And I want you to use it as a worship, uh, prayerful meditation. You can sing the song softly if it speaks to you. You can allow the song to kind of put images in your head. But I want you to use it to consider the great things that he has done for you, maybe in the, in the recent past or the far past. But let's hear this call, and before we move into a new week, let's consider what great things God has done for us.